0: Today in the Leader C podcast, we have Dr. Joe Kavidar, a trailblazer in digital health and telemedicine. He's a senior advisor of Center for Innovation in Digital Healthcare at Massachusetts General Hospital, professor at Harvard Medical School, editor-in-chief at NPJ Digital Medicine. He was the immediate past uh, board chair at American Telemedicine Association. He is the author of two books, The New Mobile Age, How Technology Will Extend the Health Span and Optimize Lifespan, along with The Internet of Healthy Things. Uh, Dr. Kabirdar's experience has transformed healthcare through technology, and he brings a wealth of expertise to our conversation today. And I'm glad to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. Looking forward to the
0: discussion. Of course. So I want to jump right to it. I was on your website, and I saw the headline under your name states "Reinventing Healthcare." At what point of your journey did you want to make that change to reinvent healthcare?
1: Well, that goes back to the early 1990s, so I finished my residency in dermatology at the Harvard Medical School program in 1988, and I was, uh, like many people at that time and in that uh, that organization, drawn to the laboratory. I, I was a laboratory investigator with a little bit of clinical responsibility for a few years. And during that time, i uh, was was the time that the the first wave of of uh, managed care was moving in. There was a lot of talk about capitation and new payment models. And I just felt like my uh, colleagues weren't really responding well to that. my my professional colleagues writ large in medicine. Um and so I was just always looking for different ideas about how to deliver health care in different ways. and I stumbled into literally into this world of telehealth. I was doing a project um, on um, a new a new technology, new at the time, mm-hmm. called digital imaging as a diagnostic tool in dermatology, and it really hit me one day, one of those aha moments when I said, if we could separate the medical knowledge part from where the patient is, we could just do all kinds of interesting things and I sort of never look back. So that's that's how I got started on this in this crazy world. I'm an accidental tourist
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned your colleagues didn't um you know pick up the technology or the new way of doing things much. Do you think that's common in medicine or healthcare? Because, you know, when we go to school, we're just so focused on, you know, studying, 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 we got to pass the boards, we got to pass the exams, we got to take to the next step. And we're not really um, shown that side of things like technology, innovation, entrepreneurship side of things.
1: That's getting better. Uh, when when I was uh, uh, coming up through the system as a junior faculty member, I, I remember turning away students who wanted to work with me saying, I don't think. You'll you'll get a good residency spot if you come and work with me. So that was how uh, it was then. We we now have of course MD MBAs. We have uh, uh, most of the young people in our training programs have one foot in some sort of startup now. So it's it's getting much better. But but the core of what you're saying I think is still a problem or 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 a scenario, which is that it's two things. One is it's a it's a very hierarchical system. And uh, if the people senior to you uh, uh, encourage you to to think a certain way, you probably do. I guess it's three things. This, the second one is that uh, it's that people are are risk averse in healthcare typically, and the third, I think, probably the most important one is that we are always worried that we're going to do some harm to a patient, so we stay within a very narrow lane of of risk taking with regards to patient care. Um, and telehealth or digital medicine as as it's evolved, really was about a new way of delivering care in the beginning. And people were kind of spooked by that. and And still, I still have discussions every it seems like at least once a week about, well, is it in person better? And what about, you know you won't be able to do the palpation or this and that? So we're still going through it, I think,
0: yeah. So the terminology connected health, that's something that's fairly new um, that obviously you're very much familiar with. Can you speak on the difference between connected health and telehealth? Is there a difference?
1: Well, it's a really, if I may tell a little bit of an interesting of story, uh, I, in the, in the mid 1990s, uh, I, I was, the organization that I was overseeing was called, uh, Par- Partners was our uh, corporate name at the time, Partners Healthcare in Boston. So the, the organization that I was overseeing was called Partners Telemedicine. That's what we called ourselves. But we were into certainly much more than video calls with patients. Uh, we, we did a lot of asynchronous work. We were doing early work with, with texting and chatbots. We were doing remote patient monitoring. With That was one of our big f- focuses was monitoring patients with, for instance, congestive heart failure in the home. So we This is what year? Uh, about 95, 1990, okay. uh, sorry. 2005, my my mistake. Um, So I was invited to talk to the board of directors of our company about the work we were doing. Um, And at the time we were working with a a professor at BU, he was more in marketing and he had this concept called connected home.
0: Hmm.
1: And we were kind of warming to that. So that was in the back of my mind. And the chairman of our board, after I presented, He said, this is fabulous work, but you do yourself a disservice by calling yourself telemedicine. And so it was really one of those leadership moments where I went back to the team and I said, I think we're going to change our name. Um, Now, of course, it's interesting because now in 2023, telemedicine isn't such a foreign concept anymore. But it is limiting uh, in a way uh, um, and, and Connected Health at the time, just it gave us something new to talk about. It was really that simple. Yeah. Now I wanna hasten to add that our field has this problem where we try to rename things every three or four years. We go to M Health, E Health, Mobile Health, Connected Health, Digital Health, Digital Medicine. Yeah, everything as a medicine and a health, it's 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 really maybe not the best thing for us. Um, I think somebody does that usually because they see it as their path to fame and innovation, that they created a moniker that they want to steer the virtual is another one, right? Virtual care, virtual everything. So of course we want to we want to end up in the place where it's just medical care and health, and we happen to use some of these other tools. We're, we're not, we're pro- probably not there yet, I would say. Um, but anyway, that's how connected health got started. It's it's a term that sort of came and went. To be candid, it's I think now mostly people will say digital health, digital medicine, and and yet, as I as I alluded to, telemedicine's had a bit of a renaissance as well in the last three or four years.
0: It's funny you mentioned the name the ch- name changes that happen all the time. I think that's kind of negatively impacting our patients. Because I feel like health, it's something where patients won't take so seriously until they're comfortable with it, Like as far as like the care they get from who they get it from. And I think it takes a while for someone to get comfortable with them t- putting trust in someone else to take care of their health. And these name changes are kind of um, making us go move backward, because then we're going to have to try to convince the patient that this is okay, this is going to be better. Uh, how How we go about... And that and universal healthcare thing, you know, like that EHRs, there's so many different places. A person can go to a cardiologist and they can go to their internal medicine doctor and the cardiologist has no idea what the internal medicine doctor did. Um, do you think that this connected health telemedicine, uh, we'll just go with connected health so we don't confuse. We're going to pick that word and go with it. Okay. Do you, think, do you think that that connected health model can be the start of the hub for a patient's care where there's not going to be so much confusion? In in different types of, of specialties, going different places, and et cetera.
1: Yeah, well, it's a wonderful vision that we would have sort of uh, universal interoperability, right? I, I completely endorse that. It's, we're, we're I, I fear that that's uh, unlikely to happen because of the way business models, at least in the U.S., are that no, nobody really benefit. Nobody has good business benefit from being interoperable. So, can
0: you elaborate on that? Well.
1: Uh, data, of course, the old the the, the uh, tired a- adage now. Data is the new oil. Wh- whatever you want to say that sounds cute. Data is really valuable. Yeah. And if I uh, take care of a cohort of of patients, um one of the reasons they keep coming back to me is that I have their records. Uh, and if 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 those records are freely available to my competitor, they may go there and and so it's a little bit of um, uh, barrier to entry thinking there, I think on the uh, medical record, uh, sorry, the EMR uh, company side, that's easy because again, I, I you know if you ask Judy Faulkner uh, from Epic, she would say, oh, I know how to solve that problem. Everyone should just go on Epic. That's easy, yeah. right? So, so everyone has their own way of thinking that um, interoperability is not necessarily good for their business, uh, c- health plans, same thing. So, whereas in company, I mean, countries like they, have they seem to have done a pretty good job in the UK, as far as I can tell, and with an NHS and so forth. But, um, so I, I hate to be, uh, uh as they say, a skunk at the picnic on, on that topic, but it, it is, it's the right thing to do, but so far we haven't found a good business reason for people to do it. Um, but yes, uh, to, to answer the question after that long-winded uh, digression, yes, that would be great. That uh, connected health would mean exactly what you said—that that it's uh, there's this sort of central information which is about the patient that follows them around and that you you can access it as needed for for helping care for them.
0: So let's talk about. Um... Facebook, Google, Twitter, Elon Musk, <laughs> Amazon. So Amazon's already touched into healthcare a little bit with the pharmacy role of things, and they're mm-hmm. going in. Do you think that Facebook, Google, X, that's now called X, stepping into healthcare can try push this connected health healthcare model?
1: Well, of the ones you mentioned, Amazon, I think, has the best chance. It is interesting that for two or three years, they've been swinging uh, as it were, use a baseball analogy, and swinging and missing. I don't fully understand why. I kind of want them to succeed because they're so darn good at customer service, um, and we in healthcare are not. So I think if they were to be a credible threat, that would cause all of us in the delivery side to up our game a little bit and treat our patients more like customers than Uh, some of the way we treat them now. I'll just leave it at that. So I I would like to see that successful. I thought when they acquired One Medical, that was going to do it because they could have this kind of virtual first, but whole package of services didn't seem to happen. I don't know a lot about, I'm not a business person, but I think it's fascinating to see how well it seems that Whole Foods worked for them. But One Medical is, I don't know why it's stumbling. I'm not sure. Um, The others you mentioned, the social networks, uh, may, maybe there's a sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, a sort of side gig that, that I, it's hard for me to see Twitter, uh, X, whatever, whatever you want to call it today, getting into the healthcare space and in the delivery side. I mean, there might be, yeah, it's hard for me to imagine that, uh, uh, Facebook has a little bit broader, um. Uh, uh remit i think and and but again i don't see them doing delivery per se they might um yeah i mean i think i think of all those amazon as i see it as the best chance so i and think right you, now they're, they're stumbling yeah
0: i think I think you kind of answered this question but i'm going to rephrase it in a different way if you were to put your money on it jeff bezos elon musk mark zuckerberg who would it be
1: well i'd like to see the cage match no i'm just kidding uh, <laughs> uh, it, w- it would be bezos yeah
0: Bezos, okay, all right, and even though Elon Elon's getting to the you know the Neuralink and stuff like that, you don't think he's going to be it?
1: Well, maybe, maybe again, I think that, you know broadly speaking, when when people say they're going to be in healthcare, does that mean they're going to create devices that does their therapeutics yeah. delivery? Right? I think I think my my bias because I'm a practitioner is I think more about delivery. Mm-hmm. um I, so Neuralink, fair question. That's not Twitter. So we were talking earlier about Twitter and Facebook. So, yeah, maybe. Um, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. You know, may, maybe any of them through their foundations or their side interests. The guys at Google, of course, have. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Verily, and and uh, all kinds of things going on to try to cure cure the world's diseases. So broadly speaking, maybe. But um, the core business of of Twitter to me doesn't speak to yeah a healthcare push.
0: You you mentioned earlier um, we're not good at customer service. Isn't that what healthcare providers should be good at? Since we're you know the, our customers are our patients. Uh, why did you why why did you think that and what what made you um, say that we're not?
1: So it's a two it's a two part question. I think one is is the first part should we and the second part is why aren't we? So let me try to to break it down. Yeah give you my perspective the answer should be is yes so there's so much uh, I think really interesting uh, research and literature on how a patient who is bonded with their provider has better outcomes and uh, it may sound a bit corny especially if you're in the more sort of surgical side of things where you think your your physical prowess with with a scalpel and, and a needle holder is is what makes a difference and of course that's important. But, yeah, there's a lot of research that, that patients who feel that trust, they feel that bond, they feel like the provider really cares about them, will do better. Um, I think the reason that it doesn't line up that way is 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 fairly simple, maybe. And that is that uh, we, we don't really, I mean, patients aren't customers. They aren't. The, the customers for us are probably the health plans they pay us to do stuff. Yeah. And um, that just creates this sort of twisted th- sort of three-way relationship where um, to be cru- crude and, and crass, I can run patients through a mill. The more I run through, the more revenue I generate, the more revenue I generate, I, the more I take home, right? So and of course we we know we all know practices like that, whether it be in practice like ophthalmology or 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 some of the surgical specialties where my, my one of my former professors when i was just a medical student uh, uh had this term which at the time i was upset by but i've used it and that's uh, uh, treating patients like biological cash registers so we 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 can do that if if we choose and the system will reward us financially for doing it so i think we talk about efficiency we do all these things to to run our offices more efficiently from from a process standpoint but we we don't really get compensated for treating patients well, meaning uh, uh, psychologically treating them well. It's just a yeah. it's a sort of a sad fact. It's a little bit like on the telehealth side, we we always talk about um, one of the and and I've been spewing this for the last couple of years since really since the pandemic, which is telehealth's the right thing to do. Check that box. but, just because a patient doesn't have to drive two hours to see you, we no nobody ends up but the patient benefiting from that and no there's no financial nobody's cash register rings when a patient doesn't have to travel do you so think, anyway.
0: but, do you, do you think that the the fact of what you just said like that the fact that the patient doesn't have to travel and the physicians are doing things telemedic telemedically if that's even a word <laughs> um do you think just that made it one yeah. Do you think that that can make the physicians or the healthcare providers lazy? Also, you know, because they're like, oh, you know, I could just get on this call real quick and, and get this out of the way and get that get this patient out. It, it's kind of like a get them out of the office a little faster type of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there is a danger there. I, I um, I, we're I, I don't think we're far enough down the road of what 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 we typically refer to as hybrid care models, which are some office. Some things in the yeah. office, some things we're not quite there yet to, to make that happen, but um it bleeds into a couple of things. So one of them is this informality of being on the internet, and that that certain practitioners and patients, but of course, the patient's the one who needs the care. So certain practitioners will um be a little more informal perhaps over a medium like we're we're talking on now uh, example friend of mine had a virtual visit some time ago the doctor was picked up the call was on the beach and swim trunks and no, no shirt. way so i said gosh i bet that individual wouldn't come to the office dressed that way right so it's there's something about the spontaneity and the that 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 sometimes throws people into that mode of not taking it as seriously.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's it's debatable whether, particularly video calls. So there's lots of we've said lots of different virtual care models, but particularly video calls it's debatable if they're more efficient or not. Um, and and if you can move the patient along quicker. But I can definitely see some people maybe thinking that way. Well, you know, there're, of course, in the u s now, uh, I don't know how many, maybe let's say a dozen, there's probably more companies that do these little quickie visits for yeah, things like filling yeah. the birth control or erectile dysfunction or what have you. And those are all pretty quick. Um, <clears throat> that's because they're uh, being efficient from a business perspective. And I think if you if you, Take the use case of something like that, where the patient is, I just need my X refilled. Why do I have to drive, park, wait, see you for five minutes? You, you nod at me and you say, yeah, it looks like you need a refill. Why can't I do that online? So there's a narrow slice where we might all agree that that quickness is of value. Um, but yeah, I think there's a danger that we we misuse it. Absolutely.
0: So the, the terminology telemedicine has been around, it's not a new concept. It's been around for years, even before COVID, way before COVID. Do you before, think yeah. that the telemedicine community took full advantage of COVID to try and implement this style of healthcare? It's kind of like, you know, this is our time. This is our shine. Like we've been, you know, everyone's been doubting it, but this is our time to show the benefits or the value. Just like, I'm like, I'm a pharmacist and we kind of brought that along with the with the vaccines, like this is our time to shine and show our value that we could bring into the healthcare field. Did you guys feel that on your end? Yes,
1: I, I, yes. So let let me parse out a couple of things on, on the answer. One is telemedicine is not a new term. On the other hand, uh, having been in the space now for three decades, there was a dramatic change during the pandemic in the sense that both providers and patients everyone now knows what the term means so i used to talk to patients about and and i would be end up uh having to explain what it meant never now do you want to do your follow-ups virtual do you want to do them in person we have that discussion everyone knows what we're talking about so there's something there that i think is important to note um you know the, the the real answer to the question is is pretty interesting. The, the answer I, I think is yeah yes with with a bit of an asterisk. We did rise to the occasion. Uh, we we worked pretty hard to, uh, to, for instance, to do a lot of policy work to keep some of the reimbursement uh, um, pathways open, uh, to help as as we could with state licensure and other things. Um, at the end of the day, if I may use that phrase, where we are now, it is still financially a better outcome for a hospital system to bring you in the office. Okay. One hospital system near me, um, and I just because I know one of the doctors there, sent a memo to all their doctors saying we're not going to do telehealth anymore because we can't charge a facility fee. Ah, So for your listeners, that might be a bit arcane. But if, if I go to a hospital to get my care, outpatient care, <clears throat> a clinic, but it's run out of the hospital, the hospital has something called a facility, fee that they, they will bill the carrier, the insurance carrier, on top of the professional fee of the doctor. And for, for telehealth, of course, that goes away. So there, there are little sort of twisted things like that that I think have kept it so that, well, right now, just to just to sort of be very concrete for a minute. Um, about 5.5% of healthcare claims that are generated in the country are for telehealth visits, and that's been stable since about early 2022, so oh, two and a, I mean a year and a half. Of those 5.5%, 68 percent our behavioral health and we haven't talked about yet we might but that's really been the one field that's sort of broken out over over all others uh in the space
0: i've actually yeah when i was doing my rotations in the hospital uh, a while ago that's the that's the that's the category that telemedicine was used mostly in actually so yeah yeah Yeah. you said that how can we maintain this momentum of connected health adoption post-pandemic
1: well, we're more or less post-pandemic now. Yeah. <laughs> um I I I think it's a it's it's a great question. I, I look at my own practice because I, I just think there's 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 something there uh to to be thought of. Now I just to just to digress from it, I'm a dermatologist. Um many things we do with for our patients require little procedures like freezing something with liquid nitrogen or a little biopsy or this and that, right? So one of the things we learned over the pandemic is that there's a small slice of what we do that's quite good for telehealth, but but that's a small slice. Um, you know, with that said, one of the things that we can do well with telehealth is, is follow-ups for patients who are on um, acne. Sometimes patients that have psoriasis and eczema can be followed because they're getting better and they're, they're not changing. They can send images over the portal. We can evaluate them and then have a phone call or video call. Um, so so that that's been our version of hybrid and the reason I I digress on that is because I find myself in the last 4 or 5 months not paying as much attention to offering those virtual options to the patients that are in the office. Um and I do but but during the first part latter part of 2020 the first part of 2021 that was all we were thinking about, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, the positive side, there's uh, we just saw the Medicare fee schedule. Uh, There's a lot of positive uh, change continuing to happen for providers to get paid, to do telehealth. Medicare is being very supportive of that, so we should give them a shout out. Um, Private payers, plus minus, which is another thing that makes it challenging if you're whoever does your revenue cycle, whether it's a hospital or a practice has to be having a brain cramp over who to bill for what. That's, that's a problem, but um, that's a key one. Billing is a key one. You already talked about one key one, which is electronic records. So we're there. Yeah. Um, that, that was a coincidence, but the fact that we have electronic records makes us much more doable. And by the way, almost all of them now have in, integrated video capability, yep. right? So there's there's a lot of positives there, and and but I, I think one of the things that we as an industry and you you mentioned my role at ATA I still do some work with ATA, and one of the things we're sort of grappling with is, I mentioned five point five percent. What is what's the right number? What's the right amount of telehealth? We we don't we haven't sort of put a stake in the ground and said we should be doing twenty percent. We should be doing, uh, because we haven't generated necessarily the data to support those claims um my gut sense is that we're underperforming right now again except for behavioral health god bless them they're doing great um but i don't know how much we're underperforming by and, and i'll say one more thing i don't mean to ramble but in my own again my own case prior to the pandemic we used to uh celebrate dermatology as a great field for telehealth because it is so visual but We never put two and two together to realize we do so many things that require us to be in contact with a patient that that we learn that. So I don't know. I know endocrinology, lots of opportunity there. Neurology, lots of opportunity there. Primary care. It's a lot of. Maybe we'll talk about this as well. Virtual first primary care is a thing now. So there's lots going on, and and I, I would say that the pandemic spurred a lot of that. Once again, patients now aren't afraid of it. They know what it is. They most of them have had good experiences. So, but but I still think we're underperforming. And, and on the delivery side of the house, which is the hospital systems, doctor groups, practices, we still have pretty significant financial incentives to bring people into the brick and mortar.
0: Yeah, when when I um, was reading up on you and your background, and I saw you were a dermatologist, I was going to ask you that question of like, what? Are, it's it's interesting how you're so into the digital health and connected health, and coming from a dermatologist, I was like, dermatologists, I feel like they're very much hands on with their patients, and you had you want to answer that, mm-hmm. so that was that was interesting. Um, what initially sparked your interest in using technology to transform healthcare delivery? Um, are, were you your parents? Is this something like were you were you raised as a kid? Were you a technical guy? Was your dad into the family? How where where did it, that spark come through?
1: It's a good question. The the answer on the family side is both of my parents were high school educated, simple, plain, really good folks, right? Very very sort of solid people, but but. <laughs> I think my father uh, he 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 uh, lived till he was eighty eight. I think he got his first credit card when he was eighty two. so <laughs> hardly hardly a technology uh, geek. I, I always enjoyed I grew up kind of watching computers go from rooms that are huge when I was in high school to something you could put on a desk to a laptop to a mobile smartphone, et cetera. And I was always a fan of what technology could do to help me uh be more efficient in my work slash home life so a little bit interested in the new app when when that was a thing or the new phone or the new smartphone or going from a desk phone to a mobile phone to a smart all that stuff was stuff that I was on top of wearables right I used to have three or four different wearables on at any given time checking them out so there's that um and I alluded to this before just so quick quickly to, to tell it again that the the uh, the thing that tied it all together for me was uh, exploring this notion of of uh, digital um, digital imaging in in dermatology, and how that would allow us to have a patient be well nowadays in their own home. At the time, we didn't even envision that because it was digital camera was one megapixel, twelve thousand dollars, the size of a shoebox, right? So we thought they would be in primary care offices. And that they, primary care docs, could get a dermatologic opinion that way. Um, And that just, I just, like I said earlier, I thought we're so underperforming. Even in the mid 90s, it was clear that industries were going in this direction of doing things virtually. And now, of course, I always make the comment, usually when I'm out on the stump. there isn't a service, maybe other than getting your hair cut, there isn't a service you consume that you can't do on right on your mobile phone first. And yet healthcare still has this, yep, call in, yep, we'll see you Thursday afternoon at 2, because that's when we have a slot in the schedule. We don't even do open table well. So. It was really that thinking. God, we could do so much better. We're underperforming, and technology could help us. Now, again, over the years, a few curveballs have been thrown in, and and we're at this point now where people really pushed the, at least the virtual video part, and they're sort of recoiling a little bit, saying, yeah, "I'm not so sure that that's good for everything." Now, I will say, I never thought it was good for everything, but I might have been a little more uh, of an evangelist um, before the pandemic. So it's it's been it's been fun to see it in real time and then sort of say, well, like I said, maybe it's 20% of our activity, not sure, but it's not a hundred percent for sure.
0: You've mentioned it, I think multiple times now, underperformance. Yeah. What? What is it who we are as, as healthcare providers that it's causing us to underperform? Is it the surroundings? Is it the services? Is it the support? Is it what is causing us to underperform? Because people like yourself obviously see the vision are we not yeah. pushing it enough to the up and coming uh healthcare providers to see that vision what is it causing the underperformance because if we show the value it should just come
1: yes well and and so you you're 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 going exactly where where I was going to go with my answer which is to to again be redundant to something I've said a couple of times the business models don't necessarily support it um in in the and what I would inv- so people ask me what what would it look like if it was if it was Really successful or perfect or what have you, and that is, you you have a need to interact with your healthcare provider. Um, again, you go to your mobile phone first. That's rule one. Um, you you enter some information, um, and then we say, oh, um, we can help you now. Once again, I I'm not making this up because this is how tech support is done in every part of the industry now. There's a robot on the front end, right? Uh, we didn't talk yet about GPT and that stuff, but so so there's a conversational agent that sort of says, "Oh, you, you know, did you reboot your computer, etc." So you'll get something like that, and then if you really do need a person, based on whatever you input, you'll get shunted to virtual or urgent care. And if it's urgent care, there are five nearby, and this one has only a 10-minute wait. It's six miles, just. Again, we've seen all these technologies and restaurants and Yelp and yet they're not there in healthcare care yet. Um, or you better go to the emergency room or you, it's OK. You can wait and see your primary care doctor, again, virtually or in person, depending on the scenario, in two weeks. Um, and all, some of this is happening. We'll, interestingly enough, the stuff that's happening, we'll collect your copay ahead of time. We figured that out. Right, we, <laughs> we somehow we stumbled through that one. So, um, but but having it all integrated, having the maps integrated, having the wayfinding integrated, having the the seamless transition between something that's virtual and something that's in person, when it's needed, you you get in person only when it's needed, etc. That that's what it should look like. And I think what's holding it up most, once again, is business models. That story I told about uh, facility fees, I, 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 I mean, maybe it was obvious when I told it. It bothers me a lot that we have that sort of, yeah. you know, that, that it, it, it's, a, it's a, a truism that any business becomes dependent on certain revenue streams, especially yeah. the easy one. Facility fees are a relatively easy revenue stream. So let's take those away. No, wait, I got to pay my rent. I've got this big, I'm building a new building, right? How many health systems are building new buildings now? All of them. So it's, uh, we just haven't made that leap. And and I think the other thing that you, you asked about this, yes, training practitioners, but you know, most of our, almost, not most, all of our practitioners that are coming out of medical school residents now are what we call digital natives, right? They grew up on mobile devices, if they had to break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend, they send them a text message. They get this, that's not the issue. It's that we've put them in these cages around how we ask them to think about care and how we pay them and how the organization gets paid and how they organize their time and et cetera. So I think it's less, and then, and finally, the patients, not all, but many of the patients Uh, If you choose your use cases, well, patients love this stuff. I I have at least one per week. Uh, I do my sessions, I should mention on Tuesday afternoons, at least one per week will say to me, wow, this was great. I didn't have to drive to see you. We got all this stuff done in 10 minutes. Thank you so much. People love that. But of course, what they don't love is if you don't treat them seriously and if they really should have come in. So they end up wasting their copay and time. And you say, you know what? Sorry, this shouldn't have been in this way. Come in and we're going to bill anyway, but come in. Yeah. We've got to get that part straightened out.
0: I think what you said is it's right on point. I think all it takes is a one-person healthcare provider to mess it up for everyone. And it takes that one healthcare provider to make it great for everyone, especially because it's such a new thing. So yeah. I think... Yeah, the ATA, like, you know, the training, maybe like if you're trying to provide that service, ATA needs to do some like training courses or certification in order for you to be able to even give that service. Because again, like it takes, it takes one person to make it great and one make person to make it really bad. Um, yeah. You mentioned the facility fees also. It's funny. Do you feel like healthcare providers are always fighting to, for the better of the patients, like, why do we have to fight so much to get certain laws passed that are like so obvious maybe, or even like on the pharmacist and we're, we're all, we're fighting right now for provider status. Like pharmacists provide a lot of great value to society, whatever, and what whatever, whatever it is. And AMA is just so against like pharmacists becoming provider status or being able to that. Like, what is why is there such a fight in the healthcare world? And why can't we just understand the values of everyone and understand that, we can provide this value. You could provide that value. This is better for that. And we just move forward. I know it's like, it's a very hard question to answer because obviously there's more into it than that. But why do you think we always are in this battle of fighting and going to the Capitol and trying to get these laws passed and spending our quality time we could be spending with our patients in the Capitol is trying to pass these laws.
1: Yeah. Well, one quick point. I, I do work with the AMA, so I, I don't want to, and I don't speak for them at all. So I don't, I don't want to um, just just to make that clear that I'm not I'm speaking as myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the answer, and it, it, it's a little ironic. So rather than talk about non-MD clinicians, because there's a lot of different,
0: correct,
1: you know, PAs, NPs, pharmacists, correct, midwives, etc. Even within my own uh, professional sphere, uh, people, as I said earlier, when we we're talking about data, people are very kind of. Um, they spend a lot of time worrying that their patients are going to somehow go to someone else, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a um, zero sum game, um, divide the pie mentality, and there are other industries and other fields where the. the the successful businesses are about enlarging the pie, not dividing the pie. Uh, but in healthcare, it doesn't seem people get there for some reason. And, and, and the I guess the reason I say is there's an irony there. The irony is that we all have, as I allude, I think I said this earlier too. We all have a six-month wait, with waiting rooms are full, we can't seem to get everything done and yet. God forbid that my patient goes to another doctor down the road, then I'm somehow losing something. So, and that extends to the MPs. It extends from op- 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 ophthalmologists to optometrists. There's, now, there's always, someone will bring in quality, and, and I don't mean to imply that the quality side of this is simple, Um it has to be solved, and you're right. Everyone should practice at the top of their license. Pharmacists are incredibly valuable partners, um, but to the top of the license and no more. And so, it's it it's it's something that um, the, the the financial part of it gets in the way of solving it.
0: It's funny how business. It's always it's always going to go back to business and, and money. Money runs the world. It really is. It's yeah. really unfortunately,
1: unfortunately true. It does. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, this quote, I'm sure you're familiar with: "The future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed." Uh, yes. William Gibson. Uh, yes. what, what part I... of that is what part of where we're at right now is not evenly distributed?
1: Well, so I, I, I'll use one example. There, there are many. I mean, there's you know the Aura Ring, uh, which which is a, a ring that can take with a little bit of tweaking, we'll be able to take your blood pressure. That. The, or the ring is here, but that fine tweak isn't, right? so um, and there's there's all kinds of in the in the engineering world, there's all kinds of examples like that. Uh, most of the things uh, that we think of as mainstream engineering achievements have a 20 or 30 year period where we didn't know about them. They were out there in small bits in the in, in the uh, uh, marketplace failing because someone tweaked some design element or something. But I think in the one example I would give that's near nearer to home right now is is this idea of virtual first primary care and I alluded to it the idea that you as a consumer <clears throat> usually through your employer can sign up for a plan during open enrollment where you get a pretty good premium cost better better than than other plans so it's a discounted premium and yet when you need to Interact with the healthcare system, it's going to be initially a virtual interaction. And then if you need to see someone, you see someone. That that is uh it's happening and, and it's it's not not evenly distributed, right? In some places that's quite popular, but those, you know, Amazon, that's what Amazon is up to. Uh Optum and United group are doing it. Aetna's got a program. Uh, even Walmart is wading into those waters. So that's, I think, an example of an innovation that's just early on the curve. So, if you're that kind of per- person who who saw the opportunity, took it, and are using it, then it's it's in your life. But for a lot of people, they'll be looking at that, and saying, "What? I don't know what that is. I never saw it before." So, that's an example.
0: Um, which countries, from your experience, are the leading in the connected health uh, providing of healthcare and? Uh- Narrowing it down from countries to which states do you think are doing the best job at
1: that? I'm I'm not uh, in the U.S. Um, I don't think of it by state. So, okay. but I will say California because their uh, their legal structure, I'm sorry, their reimbursement legal slash slash uh, structure has been promotional, not just of telehealth but of of uh, value based reimbursements and managed care and so forth. Minnesota, Massachusetts does pretty well there's there's you know sort of middle of the pack, I would say um, in terms of countries, I think Germany's really interesting. I, I don't again, I don't live in those other countries, so I don't dare say they're doing better than us, but I think Germany's interesting. They have a really interesting uh, regulatory environment for mobile apps and digital therapeutics that I think we should all be looking at carefully uh, UK I mentioned because The NHS is one system, so there's a lot they can do, Uh, and Denmark has enormously good electronic health records and and, uh, genetic records, so they're doing some really interesting things uh, in Denmark uh, by combining those data sets and, and preventative care for people.
0: When uh, t- I mentioned earlier in the intro that you're a professor at Harvard Medical School. do you put have this uh, implemented into your lectures, the digital health to kind of uh, speak to the students and um, guide them a little bit, i guess?
1: yeah, so so yes is the quick answer, but let let me elaborate a little bit. i I cause I don't want to mislead any any of our uh, viewers or listeners. the um the the term faculty at. I think most places, but certainly at Harvard is, is a broad-based term. So you you could be a successful professor at Harvard and not do any teaching. They value people who bring in a lot of research dollars and do a lot of research. So you can you can be a professor broadly. I do some teaching and it's in the context of the journal that you mentioned that I'm editor-in-chief at. I have Harvard medical students who work with me on the editorial process. So understanding which papers are uh, uh, notable enough to write editorials and then helping me write them. Um, so I, it's a it's a direct link because it's it, the journal is a digital medicine journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, of course I teach residents in the clinic. They're not medical students. They're beyond that. They're training to be dermatologists. And of course, yeah, we we constantly talk about this uh, in in the clinic.
0: What are some innovative projects or partnerships your team has been involved in that you would like to? Put a highlight
1: on. Put a spotlight on. Well, so my team is. It's an interesting time in my life. I, I don't. I don't have um, the 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 center that I used to run. We we disbanded that several years ago for a few reasons. Wow. So I'm now kind of my own. I'm my own team. But uh, working with ATA uh, on some of the research questions I mentioned earlier about what's the right amount of telehealth. That's that's one I'm pretty excited about, working um with the journal to to get the word out. It's the the journal is is doing well in the scientific community. I'd like to get it so that we're we're uh we're viewed as reading material for people that aren't hardcore scientists, that are either executives in the space or practitioners or what have you. So I'm working on uh uh on that vision as well. Um and then I mentioned I work with the AMA, we're really heavily involved in, in reimbursement strategies. Uh, that stuff is so uh, impactful because if we could create, we were just looking for instance, uh, the other day at um, the billing from, from CMS Medicare on the remote patient monitoring codes, we put those in place and I believe they went in in 2019 and uh, so much more remote patient monitoring, which is a good thing for our patients. So. Those are some examples of things that I'm working on that that are exciting to me.
0: Um, when I was a student going through rotations, we did a lot we did pretty good amount of actually t- um, telehealth um, visitations would like for ambulatory care um, areas, or especially with like diabetes education, stuff like that. Equal access is something that I think is a big part of like trying to make this uh, equal access. Is it pro- might be a problem? You know, some people live in a less fortunate situations. They don't have computers, um, yeah. Wi-Fi, um, so on so so forth. How are you? Um, I guess envisioning this moving forward, where we can provide that equal access for everyone for in the telemedicine side.
1: Well, you only ask easy questions, uh, so. <laughs> um that that's that's the hardest one i mean it it would be uh flip of me to say well universal broadband which which is a is is an answer to that to that question and and there's of course been some effort by the biden administration to increase broadband penetration particularly in underserved areas but as you say there's device um there's un, uh, uneven device distribution um, and and other things too, right? We we don't want to kid ourselves to say if you gave everyone uh, a device and good internet connection that somehow would solve healthcare access. But so there's health uh, uh, literacy challenges. So what we think about is in the telehealth space, we sem- we don't want to be cast as a part of the problem. We wanna be cast as part of the solution, but we, we aren't the whole solution by any stretch, right? This is a multifaceted uh, challenge that we face as a country. And we, we just wanna say, if you implement telehealth well, you will improve access and that's something we stand by.
0: On, on your website, it mentioned that you were creating a new model of healthcare, um, delivering moving care from hospital or doctor offices into day-to-day lives of patients. Um, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but do you think the model should be pushed on the providers first and then the patients in order for it to be successful? For example, like the EHRs, like, you know, with, uh, the EHRs were pushed on the um, physicians first to get away from the hard copy folders, like have the patient profiles, and now it's EHRs. And then and then it was pushed on the patients to get the app to have access to their EHRs. And now yeah. it's you're seeing it being a, l- a little more successful. Do you think yeah. that that model... Is better if we just focus on pushing it on the healthcare providers first
1: yeah the, the term pushed makes me a little nervous but I, but yeah. i would say uh um, i would use a different phrase probably the same thing you're saying which is a po- policy initiatives to do this that encourage providers to adopt i agree right. that that's the right way and it and the, the reason i feel that way is what i said before which is that patients are not our customers they're we We help them. in ideal situations, we help them feel better and get better, but someone else pays us to do it. So having patients cheerlead for it, as I said, they should have already gotten us solved because they don't have to drive, and it's easier. Yeah. Not, none of that's happened. So, yeah, I think policy initiatives like high tech, which was something that came out in the Obama administration and, Now, you know, 15 years later, we are all on electronic records. That sort of thing is what we need to really drive it, I think.
0: Um, I know know a physician that's been practicing over 30, 40 years, and it took them so long to transition into EHRs. I think they just transitioned to EHRs maybe like five years ago, four years ago, Mm -hmm. and they were still doing hard copies. What advice would you give to those looking to implement connected health solutions in their practice or institution, but they're so like hesitant to fully embrace it?
1: Well, a lot of the barriers are are um, that, that that we used to talk about. A lot of barriers that are now down, so you, you can get paid. That was once a barrier. You you <clears throat> again, you should have the technology embedded in your electronic record. That was once a barrier. So really, it becomes making sure that you your uh, staff are trained to submit the right bills for the services that you know the right modifiers and codes. And that you, this is the probably the, after all that, this is the, I think, the crux of it, which is choose the use cases best, that you don't need to touch the patient and that the patient will be happy with you for all that convenience. And don't choose the ones where they really should come in the office because you're frustrated that you can't do a lung exam or palpation or something. Bring those people in. Those people should come in.
0: But from your past experience in doing this, uh, for so long, are there any specific po- patient populations or demographics that have you seen particularly benefited more from connected health than others?
1: Well, yeah, we talked, we talked earlier about behavioral health. I, I just, yes. I you know, can't, can't say, I, I can't not answer the question without mentioning how powerful that's been. And it's such a need right now. And there's so much demand and, People for people to drop out of whatever they're doing in the day and have a half-hour therapy session without leaving—it's—it's just so—it's been such a lift to to everyone. That's the main one, I think. As I said earlier, endocrinology—if you're caring for patients with diabetes—there's not much physical exam involved most of the time. Uh, heart failure, I mentioned, we do a lot of heart failure management using remote monitoring nowadays. High blood pressure, sorting that out can be done remotely. So. There are a number of them. Uh, and I, I'm sure I've I'm only scratched the surface. Uh, so uh, that's why I, uh, uh, I used to give these talks during the pandemic. And I always said, think about if you really need to touch that patient to make a medical decision, or either diagnostic or therapeutic on their behalf. And if you do not, then you probably can do this quite well by telehealth.
0: Um, technology is expanding really, really fast right now. Do you think that that's beneficial or not because what happened last month is not the same thing that's happening right now we're already in like the next phases it's moving so fast is that being beneficial for someone like you that's trying to push something um, new and innovative or do you think that's kind of a thing where you sit back and kind of move a little slower because things are moving so fast
1: Oh it's a great question. So so on the one hand I think we we as forget me but healthcare providers don't tend to move at breakneck speed the, the old notion that, and, and we we do get a lot of uh folks in the in the digital medicine space that are successful tech entrepreneurs sadly a lot of them come in because they have or a loved one has a healthcare problem and they see how terrible our system is and say well we can solve that um and they come in and they go. They use the old classic, you know, break things and work, move quickly and break things. And that does not work in healthcare. Yeah. So, so there's a deliberate pace to healthcare because we're so risk averse. We don't want to hurt our patients. I don't know that we'll ever overcome that, and I'm not sure we should. So, so there's that. Um, you know, the the part about your question, I think, is is really fascinating for someone like me, is. If I don't keep up, then all of a sudden I'm not a, a soothsayer anymore, <laughs> right? So I have to keep up. On the other hand, I've seen so many trends over the last 30 years where there's every, you know, there's always a flash in the pan, and then things die down. Right now, the flash in the pan is GPT and 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 AI, and and again, AI has enormous potential. Um, please don't misunderstand me, but it isn't going to take our tests for us and yeah. diagnose. I mean, it's just not, right? It's it's not how we're going to use it. So I don't have to move as fast to keep up with the hype, but I try to parse it out. So I'm I'm being a little bit of a, hopefully being a voice of reason in the midst of these hype cycles.
0: Do you think that you mentioned, we mentioned it a couple of times that like the patients are more comfortable because you know they don't have to leave their home. They could just sit at home. I think, do you think it's important to also push the initiative of, that, you know, telemedicine is not here to replace what's already there. It's just there, like I think you mentioned earlier, to kind of boost and help and make health and healthcare better so patients don't get too comfortable where they're like, oh, I don't want to go to the office anymore when maybe they might have to. For example, hmm. like a dermatologist, like they might get used to just being at home and they're like, oh, now, now they, oh, I'll just skip the in-person one and I'll just do the telemedicine one. Do you think that's also, we should be something be focusing on as far as our patients that we might be getting them too comfortable to do?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I, on on one hand, I would, I would wish for that pendulum to swing like that because it always swings back because we, we're not there now for sure. But, I, but I, I think a more thoughtful answer would be, um, and it's careful, careful to answer according to what I heard, we should have Certain scenarios where we are replacing in person care. If we're only adding, then that's a problem from a financial perspective because we're just adding a whole nother bear burden on our health uh, insurers and patient co pays and what have you. So, but it, again, it's a matter of, I think, educating everyone. And I've talked about educating our uh, providers, but our patients as well, educating them to say, if you really feel like what you need done requires a trip to the office, just say so, right? We, we'll, we'll, happy to, we'll be happy to take him in the office, it, your call. And I kind of say that to my patients now, do you want to come in? Mm-hmm. Again, often it's for acne, something like that. Do you want your follow-ups to be virtual or in person? And they go either way, it depends on variables. But so it's, I think, the rules are don't don't offer it to people when you should be seeing them in person. And if you're as a patient think you should be seen in person, just say you want to be seen in person. Um, and the and the flip side is, uh, try to take advantage of that uh, efficiency, um, convenience for patients when when really they can get stuff done without coming in and make them happy with it.
0: So. As we move towards a more decentralized healthcare system, it seems like that's <laughs> the way we're headed. How do you envision the blockchain technology playing a role in patient-centric care? Because you know, since Bitcoin and uh, crypto came about, it, the NFTs, blockchain technologies become, Web3 has become a big thing. And with blockchain technology, it's better um, security for patient information. So where do you see that going?
1: Well, my one disclaimer is I'm not an expert at, at the blockchain. I, I I, finally think I understand it a little bit. I've, I've only had about 20 primers either in people telling me or reading, but I, I think it's a complicated technological, uh, to me anyway. But as I understand it, the answer to your question really is, it, it reverts back to something we talked about a, a few minutes ago, which is the idea of having interoperability and having universal So the blockchain would allow that. The blockchain would allow your record to be in a place where uh, only you or who you say can access it, can access it, but they can access it at any time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think that's the, as I see it anyway, like I said, I'm not an expert. So maybe I'm thinking too narrowly, but to me, that's the main uh, value.
0: You've brought up uh, GPT uh, multiple times during our conversation, so uh, we got to dive into it. The use of chatbots and virtual assistants is growing in healthcare settings. How do you see this AI-driven tools enhancing the patient engagement and communication with healthcare providers? Beneficial, not beneficial? um, What do you see it?
1: Yeah, well, I think we're not we're not there yet. There's this uh, phenomenon. I love I love the term uh, that the GPT will hallucinate from time to time, right? So, and 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 if you're expert enough at what you're engaging with the tool on, you'll see that right away. But if you're not, it it, it, the one the one thing about at least GPT is it's very confident. Yeah, what it tells you, it tells you very confidently. So, if you if you're And our human brains are, of course, this is why a lot of politicians are successful. Our human brains are used to, if someone acts and speaks confidently, we believe them more. So this tool, because it sounds so human and it's confident, uh, but I've used it a few times for different things. And almost, I I mean, I'll say all the ones I've asked to get engaged with the tool, I, I know enough to know when it's hallucinating. So Put that on the patient side, and you know it's like WebMD on steroids or something. No, not really, not yet, yeah. because it may in fact give you screwy advice. So I think we got to solve that one. Um, it's interesting. There are a couple of you know we we're talking earlier about not evenly distributed. There's a couple of products in the market that use chatbot front ends to do essentially engagement and disease management, and I've been not a big fan of them. Um, the, these are all in the market well before GPT um, because they feel stilted, right? The conversation that you have with this app about your diabetes or what have you feels to be uh, um, fake. It's possible that with GPT that will change because again, it is so kind of conversational and sounds so human. I think it's important for us to realize that we have to solve this problem one of the things that I often mention again when I'm out on the stump speaking, is that we don't have an already now, we're well into a phase where we don't have enough healthcare care practitioners to care for the healthcare care demand that we have. And the only way to solve that because we we we've lost we we can't we can't train people. We can't train more people fast enough. The curve just doesn't work. And of course, that would just add enormous costs, which we're already struggling with in this country. So we have to use technologies that I call one to many and take lessons from other industries. Um, there are and I always pay attention when I have a customer support question of any sort because like I said, you get a bot first mm-hmm. and um, there there are two ty- I see it as binary probably oversimplifying, but two types one one type is where I Literally pull my hair out because I can't get a human being. I know what, you know, like they say, reboot. Yeah, I already did that. They say this. Yeah, okay, fine. I want to talk to a person and you can't get one. Um, so we mustn't design it like that. But there are a couple, and I'll call out it's it's easier to call out the successful ones than the ones that annoy you because I'll but I'll call out Apple. They usually know within 30 to 60 seconds that I deserve a human being and get me one quickly. Um, and that feels good because on the front end, there probably are people that don't know to reboot the iPhone or hold the buttons down this way. And you, right? If you know all those things, yeah, then it becomes tedious. But if you don't, then you can solve. A bot can solve problems for you. So, t- taking it over to healthcare delivery, we have to figure out how to make that transition smooth so that people they never feel like they want a human being and can't get one. That's a no no certainly a no-no in healthcare for sure, but that they also don't feel like, you know. You alluded to this earlier, how frustrating it can be to deal with a healthcare system. So if we can get things answered quickly and move you along and not have you be on wait, on hold rather on the phone for 20 minutes or the, you know, et cetera, then. So there's an opportunity there, but we have to figure out that transition. In my opinion, I haven't seen anyone that's done a good job of it yet.
0: I think in healthcare there's a there's a comfort in hearing someone's voice that's a real human rather than uh like a yeah. bot. Um Good point. it's just it's just whether the bot is telling me the exact same thing you were gonna tell me, there's just the comfort of knowing that yeah, someone's no, I, brain, I, I said it,
1: a lot of wisdom there, yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of someone's brain is thinking and telling me this rather than someone's uh coding something. And yeah. it's scary because now they're able to make Exact. You could be. You could be a bot right now. Like that. They could make. <laughs> yeah. They could make you where you're speaking exactly like who you are and I look know, exactly. Like, yeah. And that's. I think that can get a little messy and dangerous if it comes to healthcare. Because, yeah. um. Yeah. yeah. What advice? Oh, oh, actually, I wanted to ask you about this. You recently published an article on uh, bias in AI-based models. Um. Who right now, it was an interesting article, because I, I never really thought about that part, that part of it. Who right now is responsible making sure that these technologies don't create, are not created with a bias? Because I never thought about it. someone has to be programming these AIs to function and give us the right information. Who's overlooking that? Is there anyone overlooking that right now?
1: There's no regulatory framework that I'm aware of, so it it, it devolves to the individual, either uh, data scientists that are that are doing the work, or or oversight at the co- corporate level if it's a, if it's a commercial activity. Uh, it's it's a it's a real challenge. The the not to oversimplify it, but but getting a, a diverse data set to train the software on is the is the first step, and and people are doing more of that now, uh, but there's still ways to go for sure.
0: I think it's important to start pushing the initiative of having a healthcare provider part of a tech team, Mm -hmm. Uh, like going in like these, like computer scientists, it's good to have a healthcare provider next to you to be able to kind of like lead you. We need to be able to provide that kind of, in a way, collaborative practice, but within every profession, not just healthcare um what yeah. advice what advice do you have for healthcare professionals and industry stakeholders to stay up to date with the latest trends because as we said it's 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 moving quick how could they stay up to date um with what you're doing what your team or your previous team is doing what uh the university is doing sure um
1: well i'll start with a big picture so there's two or three newsletters that i i um are pretty religiously read one of them is uh, um uh, Moby M-O-B-I, Moby Mobi Health News. That's currently owned by HIMS. Uh that you know comes out once a day as a or s- several times a week as an email. And it's, it's some good, good stuff. There's uh the guy who founded that now has his a different uh, uh he, he's involved with his own thing now, and it's called um E and O out uh, outcomes and exits and outcomes, E and O you can look him up. Brian Dolan is his name. He he does a once a week and it's a subscription service behind that if you want to be more uh, ambitious. Um, our friends at Rock Health put out an email every Monday. There's a lot of good stuff in the Rock Health email. So those are three that I um, like. Uh, I, of course, I have to plug my journal. Um, and And you can get uh, an RSS feed from from the journal. you can find the journal website Npj uh, that stands for by the way, Nature Partner Journal. We won't get into that. So NPJ Digital Medicine um, is the is the name of the journal if you if you find it and and you can easily sign up for the latest articles that come out. And we do, as I said earlier, quite a few editorials that are written in what I call plain old English so that you don't have to be a geek to understand them.
0: Yeah. I like that.
1: Um, so th- those are a few uh, I, you know, there's the usual, you can program Google to tell you when things come out. I mean, there's lots of different ways to try to keep up. So, but uh, it does move fast. And I, I confess that um, I don't always feel most of the time I don't feel up to date. So even though I try.
0: And there's one other thing you left out where they can also um, list your podcast. So you do have a podcast uh, what is what is the vision behind the podcast, and um, what made you want to start one?
1: So this is a collaboration with the ATA. Uh, it's their it's their podcast. I'm I'm the uh, moderator or or the interviewer, uh, playing the role you're playing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and our and our goal, well, it's it's really there's a simple goal, which is people consume content in different ways. And we all know the success of podcasting has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, when this comes out, at least the audio version, I could be riding my bike and listening to it, or doing dishes, or what have you, taking a walk. So you can multitask and absorb information, which is handy compared to reading or watching a video. Um, so, so there, there's just that, which is we wanted to be able to get our message out across different kind of platforms and and the like. Um, the twist, if I may, on the podcast is that we wanted to and so far I think we're we're getting there. We just started in January, but is to is to interview people that will be uh, pretty candid about some of the challenges in the field of telehealth um, in a way that provokes our listeners to think about their day-to-day. I think most of our listeners are in the industry, so we want them to go back and think about how they execute their day-to-day jobs with some insights. Uh, based on again reality checks from these various folks that I interview, so that's the goal behind it in a nutshell.
0: Awesome! I've, I've listened to a couple of them and they're amazing. So keep up the great work. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I'll leave. I'll leave it on this note. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to touch up on, or highlight, or tell the audience um, anything?
1: Sure. So I, I I'll take the opportunity to tell folks how to find me. Uh, J- j-o-e-k-v-e-d-a-r.com is my website where pretty much everything is the ata podcast that you can either search my last name kavidar or it's health virtually uncensored those three words it's a little bit of a long search but if you go to apple and you search that you'll find it um i'm on on all these social media platforms except tiktok so on uh you can find me on LinkedIn. Again, search my last name. There aren't many Kavidars. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Jake Instagram at Jake or Doctor Kavidar. Dr. Um, I have a blog on my website. You can sign up for that. So those are different ways to uh, reach me. And my my email, probably the best email for me is my um, uh, work email,
0: jkvedar at mgb at Perfect. And I'll provide all the links that you mentioned in the description on all the platforms so they could just easily click on it and get in touch with you. Appreciate it. Dr. Thanks Creator, for having me. Of course. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate our talk and I can't wait to uh, put this out for the, the world to see.
1: Yeah, we'll look forward to it. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. You.